Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel 15. What God really wants from you. Last week we spent some time during our sermon emphasizing the truth that though God has not um, chosen in His sovereign wisdom to give us understanding concerning His ways in this world, uh, there, there are certain things we don't know, there are certain things we can't understand. He has, without question, bountifully supplied us in two distinct ways. For all that we don't know, for all that God has not revealed, for all of the times and in all of the ways that we struggle saying, God, what is your plan here? What are you doing here? I don't quite understand. Uh, I don't understand your direction for me. I don't understand your justice in this particular avenue. For all that we don't understand, He has made two things abundantly clear. First, He has made clear what He expects of us, has He not? He has made clear what He expects of us. And secondly, He has made it clear how we can align ourselves with those expectations. He's made clear what He expects of us and He's made clear how to align ourselves with those expectations. God has not left us to wander in the darkness of confusion. Uh, He's not sitting in heaven laughing as we fumble around in the dark trying to Uh, take our God-given knowledge of a divine creator and trace it through a maze unto dead ends and futile attempts to conform ourselves to some vague set of ambiguous expectations. God hasn't um, formed some sort of malicious pleasure in watching us not be able to find what we're desperately looking for when it comes to Him. He has not left us with a silhouette in the mist Uh, baking into us a knowledge of Him, but never providing the means by which to satisfy that longing. Much to the contrary, and contrary to many times the arguments of those uh, in this world, God has gone out of His way to reveal Himself to us, hasn't He? God has made Himself unfathomably known to us. Did He make everything known? No. But did He make far more than what we needed? Absolutely. God has revealed to us every expectation that His holiness demands. But He's gone even a step further than that, hasn't He? When we open our eyes to what God expects, we find that we fall short of what He expects. We are literally and figuratively lost. We fall hopelessly short of everything that He is. We know God, we know what He expects, but but we find that on our own we can't get there. God is holy and we simply aren't. So God did something else for us. He didn't just make Himself known to us. He didn't just make known His expectation, but He also took it upon Himself to do for us that which we could not. He built the bridge between our sinfulness and His holiness He made a way for us to meet His expectations. Paul would say it this way in 2 Corinthians, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Paul said, I recognize what God is asking me to do. He has made known to me His expectations and then By His grace, He's enabled me to meet those expectations. What we find when we boil it all down, when we come to grips with who God is and with what God has done and with what He expects, is that all God asks from us is that we would have a heart that is submitted to Him. And He will make known to us what He expects. And He will even enable us to do it if we will but have a heart that is submitted to Him. Now remember in 1 Samuel, last time we were together, we left Samuel weeping. Weeping all night long. And he wept all night long because the Lord had told him the day prior that Saul, who God had commissioned to go and to destroy the Amalekites, had not obeyed. He had destroyed some of the Amalekites, but he had kept the king... And he had kept the best of the cattle, the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen. He had not truly and fully obeyed the Word of God. 
And God was going to now reject him as, as king. So Samuel, we left him weeping over Saul's poor choices. Would to God we might have such a love for God and for others that we would weep over the sin of others and that we would even weep for our own sin. We have such a compulsion to serve and to love and to obey God. And so let's pick up in verse 10 of 1 Samuel 15. We'll, we'll, we'll pick up in verse 12 on the overhead, but verse 10 for context. And let's read through verse 12. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. And when Samuel arose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place, and has gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. So Samuel arises early in the morning after having wept all night for Saul, and he goes to find Saul, and he seeks to trace Saul's steps from the battlefield. And, and as we do so, we'll, we'll understand a particular path that Saul took. Last week, I did not put up a map to show you exactly where things were as far as the battle was concerned. This week, we'll go ahead and do that. Remember in the text last week, the scriptures told us that Saul chased the Amalekites from Havilek unto Shur. Now, if you look on the map, the Amalekites were on the southwestern end of Israel. And sure, would have been all the way west, past the Sinai Peninsula, right to the border of Egypt. Havilah would have been southeast, basically down to modern-day Yemen. And so there was this, this huge... I mean, the, the Amalekites just scattered. They fled. And Saul spent uh, some time just chasing them down and destroying them. And then today, as we get into the text, the Scriptures tell us that Saul came to Carmel and he set him up a place and then he went and passed uh, up down to Gilgal. So uh, the, the blue line is not as easy to see there, but as we trace Saul, he goes up north and uh, he goes to Carmel. This is not Mount Carmel, which would be far more north and west. This would be a city of Carmel, which is just southeast of Hebron. Um, and for those of you who have been in Sunday school, you know that Hebron is a pretty important place, right? That's where Sarah and Abraham and such were buried and, and all of that. And then he continued, it says that he put, he set himself a place there. Uh, not, not quite sure what that means, whether he set up an encampment or perhaps set up a memorial unto the Lord. But then he continued to Gilgal. And now Gilgal, we're pretty familiar with, right? In the text, as far as where, Samuel, this is, or the, this is the third time now in these 15 chapters we've seen Saul and Samuel in Gilgal. Remember, Samuel told Saul early in the ministry that when he needed him, that he would go to Gilgal and Samuel would be there within seven days. This was kind of the place, this was their meeting place. This was a very important place as far as the guidance of the Lord in the land. It was the place where they ratified the covenant. It was the place where the, the reproach of Egypt fell off of Israel. So it's in a, a very important place. And Saul goes to Gilgal implying that he is ready for Samuel to come. He is ready for Samuel to meet him. And indeed, that's exactly what Samuel does. Samuel comes to Gilgal. And in verse 13, we read this. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Perhaps Samuel was tired from his journey. He went down south to find Saul and ended up tracing him all the way up to Gilgal. He'd been weeping before the Lord for Saul's sake. And Saul's words in this context must have been particularly painful to him. Kent, wouldn't you think? Samuel already knows that Saul's been rejected as king because of his sin. Samuel knows that Saul has not obeyed the word of the Lord and the first words that he hears from Saul are, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have obeyed the commandment of the Lord. wonder how often we do something like that. Samuel's thinking what we all must think, and in fact, he says it in verse 14. Samuel says, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears? And the lowing of oxen which I hear. Saul, you told me everything went well. You told me you obeyed the commandment of the Lord. What are these sheep doing here? What are those oxen 
doing here? If you obeyed the commandment of the Lord, let's review, Saul. What was the commandment of the Lord? Go down, destroy everything. Destroy every man, destroy every woman, destroy every child, destroy every animal, destroy everything. Wipe it all out. What are these sounds if you have obeyed the commandment of the Lord? That wasn't the commandment of the Lord. Saul responds in verse 15. And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. See, Saul knew exactly where Samuel was going with this line of questioning because he knew exactly what he had done. Better yet, he knew exactly what he had not done, that he should have done. And we know that Saul knows he's doing wrong here because in verse 23, God calls it rebellion. We'll talk about rebellion a little more in a bit. In this verse, we see Paul, or Saul, not Paul, Saul, used two tactics to attempt to justify the fact that he had not obeyed the commandment of God. Saul first steps into this process of justifying his sinful actions by blame shifting. He hands off the responsibility of bringing the sheep and the oxen back from the Amalekites. He hands it off and he says, this wasn't my decision, this was the people. The people brought them back. The people wanted to sacrifice them to the Lord. The people made this decision. The people spared the animals. Perhaps the people were in the wrong. But what does that have to do with him? Saul's second step in this process of justifying his sinful actions is to highlight their proper motive. The end justifies the means. He says, well, the people did it, but, but, but don't be too hard on them, Samuel, because see, they brought back these sheep and these oxen to sacrifice them to the Lord. That's why they brought them back. It, it wasn't for personal gain. It was for the Lord. So, so um, don't be too hard on them. They had, they had the, the right motive. Their heart was in the right place, right? They did it for God. They brought the very best that the Amalekites had to offer so that they could give it to God. Well, Samuel doesn't buy it, and he shouldn't, because it's absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? (laughs) Our excuses for sin usually are kind of ridiculous, aren't they? We read this and we say, Saul, what are you thinking? You didn't obey the commandment of the Lord. You didn't do what God has asked you. Now you're blame shifting. You're, you're taking the blame for your allowances and you're, you're, you're putting it on the people. You're, you're, you're justifying the, the means that you, you're worshiping the Lord by its end. Well, I'm going to worship the Lord, so I'm going to disobey God in order to worship God. And Saul, this doesn't work. This isn't how it works. But, but we as humans can get pretty creative in how we justify our sin when we're ready to, to rebel, don't we? And lest we get too lifted up in pride or self-conceit as we read what is, what's happening with Saul here, I think if we were to be honest with ourselves and we were to ask the Lord to search our hearts, we'd find that we do this far more often than we, than we would admit. Where we justify actions that we know are not right by, some, by various means of... of uh, loopholes in the system. We talked about that even a little bit this morning in Sunday school. When we're in the midst of temptation, our reasons often seem sound for what we do, for the sins that we choose to commit. We can convince ourselves of quite a bit. The human capacity for self-deception is, is very large. But when we look at sin and the excuses we give for why God doesn't mean what he says when he says things, it gets rather silly. So Samuel tells Saul in verse 16, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord hath said to me this night. And Saul eagerly says, Yes, say on. So that that idea of stay there is not stay here, but literally, nope, I don't want to hear your excuses. That's what he's saying there. Saul says, well, you know, the people, they brought back the sheep and they're doing it to serve the Lord. And Samuel just says, nope, nope, stay. Just, I don't want to hear any more of the excuses. Let me tell you what God told me this night. Saul says, okay, you tell me what God told you this night. And in verses 17 through 19, we see this message. We see the message that God gives to Saul through Samuel. And it says this, when thou wast little in thine own sight, 
Wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil and didst evil in the sight of the Lord. When God chose Saul to be king, He did so because Saul was a man who was usable. Saul was usable because he was not a self-sufficient man. He was not a man who thought he knew it all. He was not a man who thought of himself too highly. In fact, you recall on the day that he was announced king, he didn't show up. He was hiding in the stuff. He was not a man who we would call self-entitled or um, even self-confident, self-sufficient. He was the kind of man that God could use because he was not a man that wanted to be king. And God wasn't looking for a man that wanted to be king. God wasn't looking for a man who thought he could do the job. God was looking for a man who didn't think he could do the job because, because since he didn't think he could do the job, God had the opportunity to do the job through him. If a man is 100% reliant upon God to do the job, then God could accomplish things through him. Then God would get the glory. Then God would get everything that he wanted out of a king in Israel, which was a man of humility and obedience. But something happened to Saul, didn't it? And it happened pretty early on in his ministry. At some point within the scope of those first couple of years of being king, Saul got it in his head that he deserved to be king and that this job was not too big of a deal. That he could do this. That he could lead these people into battle. That he could make the decisions that need to be made. He got it into his head that he could do this job. And when, when you get it into your head that the job that God is enabling you to do can be done without him, it's the beginning of the end for God's blessing. At some point, Saul changed. He became convinced that he was sufficient. And he began doing things his way. The way that made sense to him. And so, John, and, and so the Philistines are all around them and he only has a, force of, a maintenance force of 3,000 and he doesn't attack them. But, but Jonathan does. And when Jonathan attacks them and stirs up the nation of the Philistia, uh, then Saul says, okay, now I and my sufficiency have to figure out how to deal with this. And he tries to gather the people together and the people only flee. And then Jonathan wins a great victory and Saul says, okay, I can do it now. Now that we've got the ball rolling, I can do it. Nobody gets to eat today until all of the Philistines are destroyed. And Jonathan accidentally eats of that honey, or incidentally, he doesn't accidentally, he does it ignorantly. And then when he's told that he wasn't supposed to do that, he doesn't justify the king. He rebels against the king in his heart. And so now there's a trespass between the nation and the Lord. And the people, because they haven't been able to eat all day because of Saul's rash decision, because Saul can do this himself. He can do this, right? And now because the people haven't eaten all day, they're famished. And so when the day ends and the next day begins, the people don't properly prepare the meat according to the law of God because they're so hungry and they begin eating the meat with the blood. And then Saul gets a force together to finally obliterate the Philistines, to finally do what God wants him to do. But it can't be done because Jonathan has sinned before the nation. And Jonathan, according to the curse, the oath of Saul, is condemned to death. And then Saul is about ready to destroy his son. And the people say, no, don't destroy him because he wrought a great victory this day. And so Saul capitulates to the people and doesn't follow through with the oath he made unto the Lord. And so he can't follow through with destroying the Philistines. This has been the fruit of Saul's choices. This has been the fruit of Saul trying to do it himself. But he's still there. Now it's time to destroy the Amalekites. And he says, okay, I'll I'll mostly do what God says, but I'm going to use my own prerogative here and and allow the people to take the sheep and the oxen and keep King Agag. He's still stuck on his own way of leading. And in doing so, he's not obeying God. God says plainly that what Saul has done is evil in the sight of the Lord. And at this point, the man who loves God and the man of a humble heart would fall on his knees, would rent his clothes, would put ashes on his head and would repent. Notice Saul's response 
in verses 20 and 21. Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. Saul doesn't get it, does he? He doesn't get it. After he has been rebuked, not just by Samuel, but by the Lord through Samuel. I mean, this is Jehovah God saying, you disobeyed me. And Saul looking into the eyes of Samuel as the prophet of God and saying, no, you are wrong. He's literally contradicting God himself here. And he says, I did obey God. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, maybe I brought the king back, but I destroyed the Amalekites. That's what God said, right? Let's, let's be real clear. Let's, let's interpret this properly of what God said. He said, destroy the Amalekites. I destroyed all of them. The king, though, I mean, is he even really an Amalekite? He's justifying himself. And then he says, and it wasn't me that brought the, the sheep back. The people did that. He's justifying himself. In the eyes of a God who says you have sinned, he's justifying himself. But he disobeyed. And again, we see his poor leadership. Saul somehow separates killing the Amalekites from killing Agag. He somehow separates allowing the people to do something with his own leadership. And as we consider this very defiant, unrepentant, self-righteous reply that Saul gave to Samuel, what we're really going to focus in on is now what Samuel's going to say back to Saul. His response will be our focus. Saul has imposed his own selfish desires upon his understanding of God's commands. The people's mind was little more than an extension of their king's mindset and so judged their obedience upon the affirmation of their king. The king let them take these things that they shouldn't have taken. And so they did. And to these thoughts, to these rationalizations, to these actions, Samuel says this in verse 22. Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. Do you know what delights God? Do you know what God really wants from you? He wants your heart. He wants you to obey Him. He doesn't want you to conform to some outward show of ritualism or religion. He doesn't want you to spiritualize your own lusts and desires in order to religiously justify them in the eyes of yourself and others. He doesn't want you pretty on the outside. God delights in your full-hearted, genuine submission and obedience to Him. Now, within the context of 1 Samuel, we understand almost implicitly that sacrifices unto the Lord are not a bad thing, are they? It is not a bad thing in the Old Testament law to, to make sacrifices unto God. As a matter of fact, this is something that would have greatly pleased the Lord, but not at the expense of obedience. Is there any true honor to God when you do something in His name that disobeys His word? There's none. Is there any way that a man can truly show God his worth through disobedience? It doesn't work. Let me illustrate this concept with a personal example, imperfect though it may be. When my wife and I first got married, eating right was very important to me. That, that somehow fell away. Um, but, but it was, at one point, very important to me to, to eat right. And, and at that time, I was doing a lot of running. I was, I was in the weight room. I was swimming miles a week. I was, I was very active. I wanted to eat right. And I was, I was a very healthy person at that time in my life. Now, I, I love junk food. I, I, you all know my love for cookies. It's not a... It's not a um, uh, a mystery in this church that your pastor loves cookies. And cookies aren't the only thing. We had a nice get-together yesterday and um, five bags of chips were there and I definitely sampled all five bags, even though two 
four of those bags. There were, there were two sets of the same chips. I, I, I had, had to try them all. Um, they, they were very good. We don't eat chips very often. I like that stuff. I like the junk food. I like the cookies. I, I uh, will not complain when my wife makes something that um, is high in uh, fats and calories for dinner. I, I, she, she, she's not going to hear me complain, but as with anything in our marriage, um, there's this process of learning about your spouse. And when my wife and I first got married, she learned that I liked certain foods, but she also learned that I didn't like how I felt after eating certain foods. In other words, I would get very guilty as a person who was running and person who was exercising and everything if I was also eating junk food. And so the eating of the junk food, though it was delicious, was not worth the guilt afterward of knowing how many extra miles I was going to have to run to work off what I just ate. And so my wife knew this, and this put her into an interesting circumstance. It put her into a circumstance where she wanted to delight me, and she knew that certain foods were delicious to me. But she also knew that what I actually wanted of her was to cook healthy meals, because even though the food wasn't as exciting, my eyes would never light up quite as much for a spinach salad as it might for you know, tater tots and chicken wings. But she had to trust what I said I wanted above and beyond what she knew I liked. And if if we can parallel it this way, is my wife, would my wife really show my worth as her husband if she disregarded my desire to eat healthy in order to give me the junk food that she knew I liked. Now, I liked the junk food, but what I wanted was the healthy food. And for her to make the junk food would have been to disregard me, to disregard what I was truly asking of her in order to to, to give me something that she thought I liked. And that's kind of what the people were doing here. They were bringing sacrifices because God likes sacrifices, right? God wants those. But they were doing it at the expense of his explicit command to destroy all the animals. Which means they were disregarding God in the name of God. They were not showing God his worth in the same way that my wife would not show me how much I, uh, my worth in her eyes by disregarding what I have requested in order to give me what I like we can put it that way. The people were disregarding what God had requested in order to give to make these sacrifices. And I know that that's not a perfect example. It's not a perfect illustration, but I hope that kind of helps you understand this mindset that they had here and how it is it is disregarding his worth to bring him sacrifices out of that which he said to destroy. God didn't want sacrifices. God wanted sacrifices at the appropriate time and in the appropriate circumstances and using appropriate animals. And by saving some of the animals which God had set aside for destruction in order to sacrifice them unto God is the same as my wife buying me a bunch of junk food knowing that while I uh, would enjoy it under certain contexts, this is exactly the opposite of what I'd asked of her. And in doing so, Saul and the people reflected a blatant disregard for God and for God's word. Now, my wife hasn't heard one of those um, requests for healthy food in a while now, so that's kind of fallen away, but, but there was a time. Uh, uh. So let's talk about the principles of obedience together and the place that actions play in obedience. It was not long ago that we defined obedience as a church, and let's do it again. Obedience is purposefully doing what we are told to do when we are told to do it with a right heart attitude. Purposefully doing what we are told to do when we are told to do it with the right heart attitude. And I gave this example last time. Let me give it again. That means, children, that when your parents tell you to empty the trash and you don't do it, that's obedience. When your parents tell you to empty the trash and you don't do it when you're told to do it, that's disobedience. Excuse me, disobedience. Um, it's, it's disobedience if you don't do it. It's disobedience if you don't do it when you're told to do it. And by the way, 
If they say go empty the trash and you get up and you pull that bag out of the trash and you close it up and you go to the trash can grumbling and saying all the things under your breath that you can't say to them with your breath? Is that how you say that? That you can't say to them out loud? That's disobedience. Because if your heart's not in it, then it's not obedience. Obedience is a heart issue and that's what God is teaching here. Obedience is doing all of what you're told to do, all of when you're told to do it, with a right heart attitude. And if we've learned anything from the life and ministry of Jesus Christ in the Gospels, we learn that Jesus is far more concerned with the heart that aligns with Him than with our external actions. And what we must understand with obedience is that obedience will always begin in the heart. True obedience will always begin in the heart. A man can look good on the outside but be a mess on the inside, can't he? That's called hypocrisy. A man can do the right things while in his heart it is rebellious and wicked. A man can look good on the outside and be rebellious on the inside. But do you know it doesn't work the other way around? A man cannot have a right heart before God, be right on the inside while simultaneously being rebellious on the outside. This is fundamentally impossible to achieve because if your heart is right, Jesus said, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. He said, out of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And so if the heart is right with God, then the rest will naturally follow. If my heart is right with my parents' children, then obedience to them will naturally follow. If my heart is right with my spouse, wife, then submission will naturally follow. If my heart is right with my spouse, husband, then the love and the nurturing and the cherishing and the leadership will naturally follow. If I try to conjure up externally what is not in my heart, I'm a hypocrite. But if I get my heart right, if I align my heart with the things of God, then the rest will naturally follow from it. If we want to be effective in obedience in any context of life, it must begin with our heart attitude and our heart motive and then allow the heart attitude to work its way externally into our actions and into our intentions. And this is the principle. To obey is better than sacrifice. This principle literally spans the entire scope of the Old and the New Testament. In Hosea 6.6, we see the, the very pinnacle of this teaching. This is, this is the verse kind of that, that all of this teaching in many ways hinges on in the Bible. God says, I desired mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. This verse is quoted twice by Jesus Christ in Matthew 9.13 and in Matthew 12.7. God says, I want a relationship with men based upon heart obedience, not a ritualistic religion based upon external compliance. Your heart to be with God, not just your actions. Love God by obeying His Word, not in selfishness, not in pride, not in personal self-righteousness. And that's where Jesus was referencing this verse. Both times He referenced Hosea 6.6, He was speaking to Pharisees, men who were self-righteous, men who were externally in great shape but internally a mess. Variations of this same theme are referenced all throughout the Old Testament, crying out for God's people to be a people whose hearts are near to God and then allowing the actions to follow in turn. I give you a few of these on the screen. Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 16, Psalm 51, 16 and 17, Isaiah 1, 10 to 20, Jeremiah 4, 4, Jeremiah 6, 20, Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, Micah 6, 6 through 8. Uh, we could... Go on with many, many more verses. Proverbs uh, 21, verse 3. Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. Jeremiah 7, 22. Hosea uh, 6, 6 we've got here. Amos 5, 21. Zechariah 7, 4 to 10. The list could go on and on of places in the Scripture where God says, I want your heart. I don't just want your actions. I don't just want you looking good on the outside. I want you right on the inside. God wants your obedience and God wants your heart. Earlier in the sermon, I made mention of the fact that Saul knew exactly what he was doing. He knew what God had commanded. 
He knew that by keeping the best of the animals and by keeping the king alive, he was only partially obeying. We have already seen in previous contexts the pragmatic thinking that Paul has, and now we see it in full bloom. A heart is in knowing defiance to God's Word in God's name. And when a man knowingly disregards the commands of God, the Scriptures call this rebellion. How severe is rebellion in the eyes of God? Well, look at verse 23. This will be the final verse for our context this morning. Samuel continuing to speak to Saul, and he says, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. The word witchcraft here literally means divination and it speaks of communication with the dead. We've seen exactly how, uh, we've, we've studied before exactly how, um, how wrong that is in the eyes of God. How wicked it is to get into witchcraft, to, to, to interact with the demonic realm in that way. Iniquity literally means nothingness in the Hebrew text and it's unquestionably associated with idols. God regularly calls idols in the Old Testament and the New nothing or vanity, emptiness. That's, that's the way idols are referenced. And he, without question, is referencing idolatry here as he speaks of iniquity. And then the word idolatry in the Hebrew text is literally the word teraphim. And the word teraphim, that would be those little idols that, that people would place on their shelves in order to receive some sort of um, blessing. You still see that in a lot of foreign cultures today. You know, they'll take the little Buddha doll or they'll take the little yin-yang or the, whatever it might be and they'll place it on their shelf. They'll, um, the, they'll put the, ro- the, the crucifix or whatever. It, it even happens in Christian religions. They'll, they'll put things in their house to try and have, you might say, good luck or to try to incur the blessing of some spirit or God. Those are teraphim, little idols. And this was not uncommon to Israel either, but it was wicked in the eyes of God. You don't need those things. You have a, a, a living God in the heavens who is watching over you. You don't need a little wooden or metal statue to try to bless you in some way. And so God says in no uncertain terms that He regards rebellion against His Word, stubbornness against His expectations, that's a hard-heartedness, as just as sinful, just as wicked as if you were interacting with the demonic realm or as if you were taking little idols and you were placing them on your shelf and worshiping them as gods or expecting them to bless you in some way. And this would have been a very shocking and very powerful statement in the ears of Saul and for the Jewish people. A diviner or an idolater were condemned to death by stoning. And God says, rebellion is just as bad as the sin of witchcraft. It may not carry with it the same consequence but it's just as bad. To alter, to ignore the Word of God is, is a wicked thing. And so too it is with us as humans. We have this unhealthy tendency, do we not, to kind of rank sin in our lives? We see stealing is worse than lying and assault is worse than stealing and murder is worse than assault. And indeed, in terms of human consequences, the consequences of murder are worse than the consequences of stealing or the consequence of assault or certainly is the consequence of lying. But in the eyes of God, sin is sin. And the man or the woman or the child who is guilty of rebelling against the Word of God is as guilty in the eyes of God as that person who is a witch or who is an idolater. They are all just as wicked in the eyes of God. And for Saul, this was the divine final straw in his authority as king. It had already been established back in 1 Samuel 13 that, Samuel, that Saul's posterity would not, be able to, would not be allowed to sit on the throne. Do you remember that? Because of the way he, he offered a sacrifice before the Philistine battle without Samuel. God says that your line has been rejected as king. In other words, Saul's children would not be able to continue as king. But he had not yet thrown Saul out of the out of the the monarchy. Saul was still king, it's just his children wouldn't become king. But this is the point where God says, it's not just your posterity anymore, Saul. I now am going to replace you. You will not maintain your authority as king. You will be replaced as king because you have now openly and 
unrepentantly rebelled against God. And we'll pick up here next week as far as the exposition is concerned. But we have much to apply before we finish our time together this morning. The title of the sermon, What God Really Wants From You, and we've found out what that is. It's obedience. With that in mind, let's consider four points together as we close. The points are these. An obedient heart will not hide behind the actions of others. Number two, an obedient heart does not rationalize thin, sin through partial obedience. Number three, an obedient heart acknowledges his own insufficiency. Number four, an obedient heart sees the severity of stepping into rebellion. And these are the four points we'll consider this morning. We'll consider them in order. Let's look first at number one, an obedient heart will not hide behind the actions of others. On two separate occasions, within Saul's interaction with Samuel here, he claimed to Samuel that he had not taken the animals to be sacrificed unto the Lord. The people had done this. And while from a certain perspective this was indeed true, Saul may never have commanded the people to take the animals, and so to that degree the people were indeed guilty. He never even may have taken one himself. There's no question, however, that Saul was aware of what the people had done and he did nothing to stop them. In the Bible, we see two different classifications of sin. It's not, it's not taught explicitly. This is a classification that is what we call synthetic. But there are sins of commission, we would say. These are based upon our actions, actions we specifically commit that are sinful. And then there are acts of omission or sins of omission where there's something going on and we, we fail to act and we knowingly, volitionally fail to act in a way we ought. And so we sin by not acting in the same way we can sin by acting. And here we see Saul sin by omission. In other words, he saw what the people were doing and as the leader of Israel, he had all authority to stop them and he didn't do it. He allowed rebellion to take place by not acting. And by not acting, he is just as guilty as the people themselves. He knew what God had told them. He knew what the people were doing. He was the leader of the nation. He was obligated to lead them. And he allowed them to take these animals. He revealed a heart that was willing to hide his rebellion behind the sins of others. And worse than that, really, He was hiding his rebellion behind the sins of subordinates. Obedient hearts are not just passively obedient. It's not just like, well, when obedience comes and knocks on my door, I'll let it in. Obedient hearts seek out obedience. Obedient hearts are those who are actively engaged in doing what God has asked us to do. Fathers, an obedient heart does not allow your children to sin and say, well, that's their decision. Because you're responsible for your children until, until the, the day where, where they're released from that responsibility as they leave their father and mother and cleave unto their spouse or, or when you um, tell them you're at an age now where you, uh, you are on your own and, and, and you can begin making some of these other decisions and, and you're accountable for your own actions. But until that day, they're yours. It's your responsibility. Don't watch your children doing something wrong and say, well... Guess that's their decision. No. Fathers, if you're the leader in the home, stop the sin. Don't allow the sin in. Well, my wife rented that movie. Well, my daughter chose that outfit. Well, my son must have learned that from a friend. Oh, well. Not if you're the leader in your home. If you're the leader in your home, God expects you to lead your home into righteousness, to knowingly allow sin into your home, a home over which you have been given complete biblical authority, is to reflect that heart of disobedience. It's the sin by omission. And I guess the way that this came to mind more than anything is in my position as a pastor. As pastors, this is how we need to lead our congregations. I can get on my knees and blame others for the sins that are going on in the church. But if I knowingly allow these things to take place that are not pleasing the Lord, there's no excuse for me as the pastor of this church. 
An obedient heart will not hide behind the actions of others. If I hide, if I go to God and I hide behind the actions of the people in the congregation, in the same way Saul went to God and tried to hide behind the actions of his citizens, I'm just as guilty. And God makes that abundantly clear. Leaders, we, we need to lead others into righteousness. An obedient heart will not hide behind the actions of others. It will be compelled to use the authority that we have to help others seek righteousness. Number two, an obedient heart does not rationalize sin through partial obedience. The definition of rationalize is an attempt to explain or to justify one's own behavior or another's behavior or attitude with logical plausible reasons even if they're not true or if they're not appropriate. Saul, knowing God's command to utterly destroy everything related to the Amalekites, rationalized his disobedience and the disobedience of the people upon the grounds that they were going to use those animals obtained through their disobedience to worship the Lord. But an obedient heart will not use partial obedience to rationalize or justify sin. Partial obedience is known in this life and is known in scriptures by another name. And that name is disobedience. And we as Christians have a tendency, we can do this, can't we? We can rationalize and justify our sin by putting it within the context of some Christian veneer or religious veneer. Religion has always been like this. Religion has always been a societal cash cow in many ways, right? Businesses, businessmen have known for millennia that, that the most loyal and the most consistent user base is a user base that is compelled by religious devotion. And in our country, one of the results of this has been the sheer number of, um, of Bible translations, the sheer number of churches, the sheer number of, of name it religiously, and it's out there. And the consequence of these business tactics, perhaps intended, perhaps not, is that particularly as we think of the different Bible translations, people can open different Bibles and find different meaning in the text. Now, there are are well-translated Bibles, and we know that, but we all know that there are very poor translations out there as well. And so because there are, and and in this particular context, because there are, are so many Bible translations out there, a person can take a look at a, a particular sin and they, they can then take a look at a particular translation of the Bible and they can find a translation within which they can justify their sin, can't they? There, there's a capacity out there to find a translation to justify just about any sin you want to commit. And so we live in a Christian culture that is constantly rationalizing sin and partially obeying God's word. The church rationalizes that to reach the world, we must become like the world, and so we allow the world into our homes and into our churches, kind of living like a Christian, kind of thinking like a Christian, but with a huge dose of worldly philosophy and actions mixed in because we can take different passages of the Bible and shoehorn that into it. The church rationalizes its decision to soften its stances on doctrine, whether it be divorce or women teaching in the church or on sodomy, not because God's word gives flexibility in these regards, but because we say if we don't soften the scriptures, we'll lose our opportunity to minister to a subset of people. The church justifies its immaturity under the guise of reaching a generation of young people who are bored with stuffy doctrine. So let's just get rid of the doctrine so that people don't get bored. The church rationalizes bringing carnality into a church as a method of making guests and immature Christians feel more comfortable. So the Christian world has yielded distinctives that demonstrate to the world the Christ-driven capacity to overcome the world in the name of reaching the world. Can I say that again? The church yields the distinctives that demonstrate to the world a Christ-driven capacity to overcome the world in the name of reaching the world. And is this not the same kind of philosophy that drove Saul to allow these animals to be taken? Saul justified his disobedience in part, his partial disobedience, 
with the fact that by disobeying, God would be able to be glorified through sacrifice. If only I compromise this command of God to kill all the animals, I can bring some back to worship Him. If only I compromise the Word of God, name it, fill in the blank, I can benefit God in this way. If only I compromise the Word of God that states women can't be teachers in the church, well, I can make the church more palatable to a feminist culture. If only I can compromise the Word of God when it comes to the sin of sodomy, I can make the church more palatable to culture. If only I can compromise the Word of God, I can accomplish some God-given purpose. It's the same thing that Saul did. And you know what God called it? Rebellion. You see the problem with this rationale? You see how the battle for the hearts and minds of culture is already lost the moment you decide to yield the distinctives of God's Word? Do you see how regardless of the number of people in the seats of a church on any given Sunday, if they're there because of the compromise of the Word of God, the battle has already been lost for their hearts? They may be in the seats, but the battle has been lost for their hearts. Because you've shown, you've taught them that it's okay to compromise the Word of God. This is not an obedient heart. An obedient heart sees partial obedience as rebellion. And obedience, an obedient heart does not seek to rationalize or to justify our sin by playing mental and doctrinal games of twister with the commands of God's Word. I'd like to share with you a quote by a man wrote many years ago, and and I'm not going to tell you his name. You can come up and ask me afterwards if you're curious. I'm not going to tell you his name because I don't endorse most of what he writes. But this quote was very good, and I appreciated it, and I wanted to share it with you. He said this, The matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any word in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in the world? Herein lies the real place of Christian scholarship, he said. Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the Bible, to ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close. Oh, priceless scholarship, What would we do without you? Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of a living God. Yes, it is even dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. The idea there is that we as Christians, exactly what I was saying about Bible translations and church direction and stuff, we as Christians have fallen into this trap in the modern age of finding some biblical explanation for rationalizing what the New Testament clearly says we ought not. And when we do that, all we are doing is exactly what Saul did. He was rationalizing, disobeying God's command to destroy all of the Amalekites and all of the animals by saying, we're going to wrap it in, obedient, in, in, in sacrifices to God. Sarcastic though it may be, this quote is indeed quite accurate. Third point is we must hasten on. An obedient heart, number one, will not hide behind the actions of others. Number two, an obedient heart does not rationalize sin through partial obedience. Number three, an obedient heart acknowledges his own insufficiency. Saul had become, in no uncertain terms, deeply self-sufficient by 1 Samuel 15. He had little use any longer for God's commands. He had little use for the guidance of Samuel. He tells Samuel to his face, you're wrong when Samuel is giving him the command of God. Make no mistake, he still needs God's blessing and and he still wanted Samuel's support. We'll see that in the the verses to come. But he found little use for actual, uh, of God or Samuel in, in the actual contribution to his actions. And God, through Samuel, laments Saul's change of mind where he was once little in his own eyes. Now he thought he was pretty big stuff. And the testimony of Scripture throughout both the Old and the New Testament is that spiritually successful men and women, children, listen to this, spiritually successful men and women will always and without fail be men and women of personal humility before God. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 3, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think 
but to think soberly, to be of a sober mind, to be, to be of, a, of, a, of a mind that, that is seen clearly. In other words, recognize who you are in light of who God is. And you're about this big in light of who God is. According as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Within the scope of the interactions one with another and with God, we are called to remain grounded, not to think that the church needs you more than the church needs God. Not to think that your gifts for the church are more important than her gifts for the church. When we fall into this thinking, we fall into a form of self-sufficiency and pride which will stunt both our spiritual growth and God's ability to use us effectively. The theme of this humility is established in Proverbs 3.34. But he giveth more grace, the Bible says, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. God resists the proud, that the man who is proud will find himself being spiritually opposed by God. But on the other hand, the man who is humble will find himself spiritually exalted by God. This verse, Proverbs 3.34, is quoted two times in the New Testament. The first time being in James chapter 4, verse 6. James says, But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Within this context, James is speaking to a group of Christians who are seek who are seeking their desires by compromising with the world rather than going in obedience to God. And so James goes on to say in verse 10, that's the second verse on your screen there, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He shall lift you up. God doesn't want your self-sufficiency. He doesn't need it either. God doesn't want your self-confidence. He doesn't need it either. God wants your humility. He wants you to humble yourself before Him and to let Him lift you up. That's what God wanted of Saul. That's why He said, when you were small in your own eyes, when you were little in your own eyes, that's when I chose you. That's what I wanted, Saul. I wanted a man little in his own eyes so that I could lift him up, so that I could exalt him. The minute Saul started exalting himself, God began to abase him. The second verse that quotes from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, is 1 Peter 5. Verses 5 and 6 say this, Likewise, ye younger... Submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. The obedient heart recognizes he has no capacity in himself to do anything spiritual. And so he fully submits himself to God to do through him what he cannot do himself. And regardless of what that means for this life, regardless of whether that means honor or shame in this life, safety or danger in this life, we know the man of patient humility is the man who will receive honor before the throne of God. So an obedient heart will not hide behind the actions of others. An obedient heart does not rationalize partial obedience uh, or sin through partial obedience. An obedient heart acknowledges his own insufficiency. And fourth and finally, as we close, an obedient heart sees the severity of stepping into rebellion. This is perhaps a little bit of circular reasoning. We've already, I mean, this is, this is, all of these points should make this point very clear. Obedience is the heart issue here. And if you are guarding your heart to ensure obedience, then you likely understand that rebellion in your heart is seen as something that's very severe to God. But this is the lesson that Saul needed to hear, that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry. The rebellious choices that we make are not any better in the eyes of God than those who would engage in these other sins that we might rank higher. And the obedient man is a man who will obey God from the inside out. We talked about the Pharisees earlier and the way Jesus Christ spoke to them. Look at what Jesus said to them in Matthew 23, verses 25 through 28. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, 
but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. It really doesn't matter what you are on the outside. It really doesn't matter how people perceive you or how many people think that you are a good Christian. When you stand before God one day, you will not be judged on the basis of what people thought of you. You'll be judged on the basis of what it was real. The reality of what was in your heart. And what is real is your heart. When your heart is right, it will overflow into your life. When your heart is not right, we can conjure up hypocritical actions. But that's still sin. The obedient heart is a heart that has rejected rebellion and is committed to inside-out Christianity. That's what, that's what I'd like you to take from today. The phrase, inside-out Christianity. Inside-out Christianity. What does God want from you? He wants a heart of genuine obedience. As believers, we are not called by God to clean ourselves up and to look a certain way and to act a certain way and to talk a certain way. We're not called to be Christian clones one of another and if someone doesn't look like the rest of us then there must be something wrong with them. We are called to have a sincere heart of obedience unto God. And when we do, the obedience which fills our hearts will likewise compel our actions to fall in line with God's expectations. Through the Word of God, and the power of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of those who believe, we can live that kind of a life. A life submitted to God from the inside out.